Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, From the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills, adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, the host of Fox NFL Sunday and author of Losing Isn't Everything, the untold stories and hidden lessons behind the toughest losses in sports history just released in paperback in time for the holidays hello nice to meet you kurt menifee you as well how are you mike i'm well thank you so you would be uh your nice like- observation by the way i like you notice that this is really the 13th floor oh, and not the, I, I hate places like hotels especially you drive me nuts yeah like you can't figure out it goes 11 12 14 you're like oh you know I'm really on the 14th floor, not the 13th. I have a knack for working for corporations that I think are so cheap that they're because I <laughs> right like it's so funny that we don't really live in a superstitious world anymore, and yet I'm certain yeah. there's a reason they don't call it the 13th floor, so they call it the 14th. But by doing that, they totally acknowledge the elephant in the room, exactly. and they acknowledge nobody wants a 13th floor. But we know that that's what we're giving you, so I think they get a break on this. Well, but no, it brings it to your attention. Actually, it works the other way because right. I never would have. If it, you give me, you know, room 1311, right? It, I wouldn't have thought superstitious. Nothing would have crossed my mind. But as yeah. soon as you say 11, 12, 14, I'm like, well, why is there no thir- Oh, wait a minute. Sports is probably the just about the most superstitious place that we still have in our culture. Where you're allowed to be superstitious. But I don't feel like I have had that feeling of, I'm not the craziest sports fan, but I have had that feeling of I've been sitting in this chair and things have been going well for my team. I better not get mm-hmm. up. And I don't feel like I get that feeling about like, you know, my kid's been doing well in school. Maybe <laughs> I should keep driving this way to school. No, it doesn't seem to carry on to the outside world. People think you're nuts when you do that. Yeah. If you told your your, your, your best friend, you right. know, I take this street and then this every day because I did it the first day and my daughter got an A. Right. So I'm always going to do that. They think you're psycho. But if you do it with a sports team, yeah. you're right. No, they it's describe something for you. It's like, yeah, you, good. You're a big fan. Good mm-hmm. job by you. Mm-hmm. So you're mid-season NFL season now. What mm-hmm. is your like weekly routine like? What would you be doing? Uh, it, it's, it's the same every week. I, I tell people... You pick a date between September when the regular season starts um, and January when it ends and tell me a day of the week and a time and I can pretty much tell you what I'm going to be doing, where I'm going to be doing it. Uh, there's some variation, but I mean, our, our week, the routine, it's almost like being an athlete. You know, they have the same practice schedule and you know, we have kind of the same work schedule, the same routine. And, you know, the, the only flexibility, or the biggest flexibility, and it's a good one, is that, you know, we have... X amount of things that we have to do by a certain date. So if you want to spend six hours in the morning doing your homework or six hours in the evening and kind of free your time up, you're going to do it. But you know that it's Wednesday, I've got to get this done. It's Thursday, I've got this call and this meeting and this thing. And yep. Friday, you know, so it, the routine's the same. This is when I meet the, the home coach. This is when I meet the exactly, away coach. Exactly. The routine's the same. I, I really enjoy your work as a... Thank you. I don't know a, a better cooler way to say that because it's such an incredibly important job that you have as i'm sure you're aware of like you're uh 
when you get a new host of the Sunday NFL show, it's almost like I was thinking about this before you got here, like when your sibling starts like dating somebody and you know they're mm-hmm. going to get married. Like I'm going to let me feel this person out because I'm going to be stuck with this person right. for a really long time. Right. right. Well, those of us who have that position hope it's a really long time. You know, it's one of those things you go through, and I went through the transition. 12 years ago when you know James Brown was the host of Fox NFL Sunday when it originally started in 1994 and then in 2006 uh, he left to go to CBS and so I, that's the year I came over and that first year they took the show on the road and tried to do kind of a college game day kind of thing Why it did didn't they do really that? work um, I, I think it was one of those they just didn't know what to do you know because that show for 12 years for the most part had been the same group of guys mm-hmm. you know Jimmy went back and coached for a little bit with the Dolphins he Jimmy did. Johnson uh, and then but he retired and came right back in so <clears throat> it was the first major change on that show and I think they just oh, okay what do we do so they took the show on the road Joe Buck and I split the duties and he was calling you know the game so he'd do like the first 45 minutes and then I would do the last 15 minutes then I'd do all the half times the post game and we'd go back and forth and it was just it was a nightmare it, it really was just logistically it was a nightmare but it was also difficult for the other guys in the show to get a rhythm you know Everything is about teamwork. Yeah. You, you need to know the guy beside you and know him well and what's good and what's not good and those kinds of things. And it's hard when you're constantly changing back and forth when it's already a new position anyway. Yeah. You know, because there he got used to James Brown and that chair leads the show. It's it's the point guard. It's the quarterback, the guy who kind of distributes the ball. So it was rough for everybody. That second year, they moved us back to the studio. Joe went back to doing games. I was the host. And so it, it's been uh, consistent since then. We added Michael Strahan a couple years later. Other than that, have been no changes. And so I, I know that feeling of people kind of feeling you out at the beginning, you know, because in especially the beginning, you're not the guy I like. You know, no, you're I, not you're not part because you, you become a part of yes, people's. Right. You be, I mean, not to exaggerate. I don't think this is exaggerating. You become the a part of the fabric of people's lives. Right. You're in the house on Thanksgivings yes. and on Christmases. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you have the announcers from when you were a Exa- kid 100%. that you share with your dad. Yeah. So it they really do need to feel you out. Right. Who is this guy who's in my living room? And it's understandable. And you know that's why it's one of those things that not only the guys that are there, but as you said, you talk about it's like your sister dating someone else. You knew you liked that guy that she used to date. You hope you like this guy that right. she dates now. It doesn't mean that you hate him and you're not going to give him a fair chance, but you, you you need to establish that relationship. And that's what, you know, the transition time was. And now for me, it, as again, it's been 12 years. Yeah. And I, I feel like I'm, I'm comfortable with most people uh, wherever I go. People are kind enough to, to say good words. I guess nobody ever walks up to you and go, y- you suck. No, they, do that on Twitter. they save that for Twitter. Yeah, they do that on Twitter, <laughs> but not in person. So, you know, I'm, I'm just fortunate and blessed. That's how I look at it, just to have this opportunity. Because it's one of those things that you look at when you're a kid. If someone said, you get to grow up and get paid for a living to watch and talk football game games and, and be on a set with guys that you watch play when you were kids mm-hmm. that are in, hall, in the Hall of Fame or legendary coaches and these kind of things, and you're going to get to do that every week, you'd be like, this is a dream world. This is not reality. No, yeah. that's never going to happen, and it happened for me. Does it actually feel like you're just hanging out? Because you know, I I do radio, and when I'm in a room with other people, they go, "Oh, this is great! You're getting paid to just hang out and mm-hmm. laugh with each other." And what I always say is, "It's it." Do you think I'm going to a party? What I'm actually doing is hosting a party, mm-hmm. and hosting a party <laughs> is work, unless right. you're the kind of person who really right. loves doing that. Yeah. It's not really just hanging out and watching football. With no, the no, guys. no, 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 no. It, you're you're 100 right. That's the way to put it. it. You're hosting a party because. Not only am I the host of the show, we all are hosts for America. As you said, we're the people that you rely on, that you feel comfortable with, that you invite into your homes. Yeah. But also, 
that helps put things in perspective. When a team loses, why did they lose? When a player gets injured, what's that like? So you have to have that information, and it can't be just stats and, and figures and names and numbers. There has to be some homework, some research that's done there by conversations you've had with people in the league or, or by experiences you've had in the past. Um, and you've got to be able to call on those instantly. And that's where the homework comes in because you don't have tomorrow, let me research this tonight and come in and tell you tomorrow. Or let me Google it and I'll tell you in five minutes. It's got to be off the top of your head. And the only way it's off the top of your head is because you've done the homework and you're prepared. Um, back when I did games, which I did for 10 years before being in the studio at, at Fox. And you still, I find it interesting, still do a little bit. You yeah. squeeze in and I'm sure you don't have yeah. to do it. You must really like I, doing play-by-play. I, 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 I do. I, I enjoy it because you know, the difference between play-by-play in the studio is that play-by-play is literally play-by-play. You have no idea what's going to happen 30 seconds from now. It could be an 80-yard touchdown. It could be a fumble and return the other way. It could be an injury. So you wind up doing all this homework to prepare for that. And honestly, out of all the homework you do, only about 20% of it will you use in a game. The trick is you have no idea what that 20% is, and you fall on your behind if you don't know that. You can't go in knowing half of it and go, well, they're only going to ask me this. It's, it's a pop quiz every single second for three hours on live television. In the studio, you've got a little bit more time because you know the topics that you're going to talk about, uh, you know, and then you wind up reaction as, reacting as the day goes on, but you've got a little bit more time there. So those are the difference, differences between the two. But I just absolutely love doing the homework, being prepared, and then being able to disseminate on the air. I go back to one of the first years um, that I was on the show. It may have been my first year. And uh, kicker... Matt Bryant, who's now with the Atlanta Falcons, was yep. with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the time. And he makes a kick, wins the game, celebration, and they come right to the studio. And I throw out, you know, Matt Bryant uh, from uh, Orange, Texas, and he used to work at a pawn shop. All this. And Howie Long, he goes, only you would know that. How do you know that? It's like, well, you know, you prepare for those moments. Some and, of us do our jobs, Howie. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but, you know, what are the odds of that coming up ever again? You know what I mean? Right. So it was that one moment, yeah. that one time, mm-hmm. and because you'd done your homework, you were prepared for it. That's a win. Yeah. Now, when you start working for uh, in a, f- sports on Fox, do they explicitly tell you you need to laugh very, very hard at everybody's jokes? <laughs> like that? Or Yeah, yeah no, perfect, perfect. No, 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 no. no. You or know, or, does, that just, or you, does that just go without saying? It, it goes without saying. You know what it is? I, I think that, and I've said this many times, and I say it because I mean it, we are genuinely friends. I mean- it's you know, Wednesday afternoon out here in, in California, Wednesday evening. You know, I guess an hour and a half ago, I had a phone call from Terry Bradshaw. Yeah, hey, what's up? Nothing. I just called to, you know, shoot the blank. And, and so we do this. We watch college football together on Saturdays. Really? Yeah. Doesn't, Jimmy, he, doesn't Terry, he know people just text now? Yeah, well, <laughs> he, he he's 69 years old. Yeah. So you know who's great at texting is Jimmy. Jimmy loves te- Jimmy's 74. He loves texting. He's, he's got a, more of like a CEO yeah, kind of vibe yeah, about he, him. Yeah, he, he does. But, you know, I, I think we, during the week, we talk, I can show you, if not daily, every other day for sure, there's a text chain that all of us are on and somebody tells a joke or makes fun of someone or, mm-hmm. or talks about what's going on in their family. So we enjoy being with one another. That's so frankly they, adorable. Yeah, oh, it, it's, it's so cute. <laughs> but all we, really, all they're doing is turning the camera on. We're That's doing right. the same thing that we do in a room without the adult beverages, mm-hmm. but that we do in a room on Saturdays having, watching college football or that we do during the week or when we're, a, you know, we do a boys trip in the off season that we go together somewhere. You know, we've been to Florida Keys. It's been Vegas at times. It was New York last year. Um, where we just get together and, and just do our thing. And it's usually in May or June. 
So our families are friends. I mean, so when we get on the set and people go, oh, well, it's fake laughter. It's not. It's like you're hanging out with your buddy and your buddy tells a joke. Yeah. And sometimes you're laughing to support him so he doesn't look like an idiot. Yeah, of course. You know, so maybe it's fake from that standpoint, but it's not because you don't like that person or you're pretending to. That's true. You weren't laughing that hard at Chell Sonnen. <laughs> no, no, that's a whole different animal. <laughs> we'll get to that. So uh, I think it was Chris Collinsworth said something a couple of years ago in an interview that I found so interesting and I've always remembered. He said that he loves his association with the NFL because he has been out to dinners and in social situations with people from all walks of life, high flyers, politicians, successful you know, entertainers, what have you. And he said, if we're all sitting around a dinner table, everybody always wants to talk to me right. about the NFL. Yeah. Do you, out of all the subjects, you yes. could talk to this entertainer about it being a Hollywood star. They want to talk about football. Wherever you go. And, you know, that that's the thing. And living out here in Los Angeles now especially, and you've run into you know, celebrities at restaurants or events. You know, you go to charity events. Uh, openings, all this thing. And everybody wants to talk about their team because it, it, I'm from Philadelphia. I'm an Eagles fan. I'm from St. Louis, you know, whatever it is. Met any Rams fans yet? Well, well the, <laughs> yes, I have actually. They're like some old school Rams fans. Okay, sure. They're yeah. guys that are like, hey, when the Rams were here, I was a kid or I grew up here in Los Angeles or they're an older actor or whatever. So it, it, it's fun because it gives you that instant connection because for me, I know I'm babbling here and I'm on television, but I'm kind of a shy guy. I was like, when I was a kid, I was like almost, until I was about 13, like, di- almost didn't talk to people, almost that shy. Um, so it's hard for me to see someone famous on the other side of the room and go over and strike up a conversation with them, uh, even if I love their work. And that football in particular seems to be the unifying thing because they want to talk to me, as you said. They want to talk about their team or what's going on in the league. And you find that the majority of time men and women they want to have that conversation, so it's a conversation starter. Well, then it's easy to go, hey, you know, I watch you on Ray Donovan all the time, love the show. And then you wind up exchanging phone numbers sometimes, and then you wind up going to dinner, and then your wife mm-hmm. becomes I had a couple of quote-unquote celebrity uh, friendships based off of solely being in the right place at, at a time where somebody wanted to talk to me about football. Who is somebody that has talked to you about football that maybe we wouldn't guess is, uh, is, is a huge fan? Um... I'm trying to think, who would you guess isn't a huge fan? Or just what's somebody who comes to mind, oh, wow, I can't believe I was just Cheryl talking. Cheryl Teagues? Oh, okay. Remember Cheryl Teagues? Yes, I do. So I'm can't on say a f- I had the poster, but yeah, yeah. okay, but I'm on a flight with her, and she starts talking about the Minnesota Vikings. Uh-huh. She's a big Vikings fan. Um, and so It worked. The whole, I mean, look, I'm sure she's been a fan for a long time. Yeah. I'm sure she's a purple people leader. Yeah, you know? Exactly. But, but the whole going pink for October thing, that in fantasy football, yeah. man, it was cynical, and yeah. it- it, it worked. It, it, it connected with a lot of people that probably wouldn't be people who followed, not enough to know players individually. Yeah. You know? Um, so I, I think that's one that, that kind of comes to mind instantly. But, I mean, everywhere you go, I mean, it, it truly is. And, you know, what, what's cool for me is that not only do they want to talk football, like I tell them I watch their shows, so many of them watch our show. And, you know, that's how they recognize me. Of course. And it's nice to know, not just because they're celebrities, that people enjoy what we do. You know, because yes. we can laugh and we can have fun. But let's be honest, this is our jobs and this is a business. And if you're doing it and nobody's watching, you don't get to do it for long, nor is it fun. And f- to be able to go somewhere and whether it's in the grocery store and have you know, Joe Blow from Three Doors Down, who's a plumber, come up to you and say, I love watching you guys. Or whether it's the guy who's the star of the latest hit movie who comes over and says, I love watching you guys. It's all the same to me. It's people enjoy what I do for a living. And 
that's what we're doing on Sundays. You know, you try and bring a smile to somebody's face. Well, and everybody's the same when they're rooting for, yeah. you know, like, please let the kicker make the kick. It doesn't yeah. matter if you're the sultan of, of Iran right. or or a plumber. We're all think, we're on the exact same place as a human. That's what makes sports special. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the NFL in particular, because it does bring so many different people together. Yeah. To root. You know, people are, you look in the stands of an NFL game or you go to a sports bar and you see people, you may see one guy who makes $5 million a year and a guy who's making minimum wage, and they're both sitting there and they're high-fiving one another. Yeah. One may be black, one may be white, one may be English, you know, one may, may be from Iran. It doesn't matter. They are unified by the fact they're rooting for this team or for this game, and, and that doesn't happen with movies. It doesn't happen anymore, with TV anyway. shows, you know? I mean, there's nothing that brings everybody together. And I do think that that's been part of the issue um, this year, why so many people we can go down whatever path you want. But with the anthem stuff and all that is because I think a lot of people felt that sports brings them together and they can forget the rest of the world. And at that point, it was thrown in their face again and made you think about the rest of the world, and people don't want to do that a lot. No. I think, yeah, there's people who don't want to think about politics at all, and we forget how many of them. I mean, look at our voter turnout. Yeah. There's plenty of people who just don't care at all. And, well, you know. to me, it's not just about politics. Mm-hmm. It's about they don't want to think about anything that doesn't concern them mm-hmm. uh, unless they have a rooting interest in it. And a lot of the issues that you know the players were taking a knee for or – the conversations that were being had or that the league is having. I mean, look at Jerry Jones and Roger Goodell right now. Mm-hmm. People don't, in my opinion, a lot of people don't want to hear that because it doesn't concern them and they have enough crap to go through in their daily lives. When they turn on sports, they want it to be about the games and fun and, and being able to root for somebody or root against somebody in some cases. Yeah. And, and they felt that that was intruded on, uh, which is something that they're not used to because the NFL – had for so long been their refuge. And I don't really know what you're supposed to do, because if you go to ESPN.com or you know FoxSports.com or whatever, there's going to be headlines about this yeah. stuff. Well, and, because you also have to cover it from a news well, perspective it is, as it well. Is, it is sports right. news, and that's what these are, sports news websites. And it would be bizarre and negligent if it was ignored, right. but it's intrusive. Mm-hmm. And, and ESPN, for example, seems to have, somewhere along the way, and you just follow the money, they decided that getting involved with social stuff, particularly from the liberal side, was, was mm-hmm. good business, or else they wouldn't be doing it as much as they do. But Here's what I, I think, and I'm not going to comment about ESPN because I don't work there. I don't know what their inner workings are. I don't yeah. know what their memos or their meetings or, or those kinds of things. Uh, but I can tell you, Fox at least gives us a, a pretty big leash. Yeah. And, and I have can't think of anything I've ever been told, take this side or that side, or don't do this or don't say that. Now, look, we all know it's our jobs, too. We know that there are certain things you can and can't do, you know, like anything else. You, you can't go on Twitter and say the president's a white supremacist. Right, exactly. Or you can't that, would, go that, would, that would probably get you in trouble. You, or you can't go out and swear, or, I mean, you know, on television. Right. You yeah. know, but the, the gray area has become social media, mm-hmm. because so many people who are on-air talent are looking to brand themselves, because they're looking to branch out and do other things. And to do that, they need to be an individual. They need to be not the person that you're turning on TV and watching give scores or whatever. And by trying to do that, I think a lot of people have have overstepped the bounds and and, and not been able to reel it back in. um, And that's what gets you into trouble. And I I think that that's where, I don't know if it's necessarily that, again, not being in ESPN's meetings, but, you know, I don't know if it's that's what's pushing their agenda as much as trying to be relevant on social media. And I think that's where not just media companies, a lot of people have gotten into trouble, a lot of businesses trying to connect with millennials or trying to be you know, on Twitter and, and be edgy and, and 
stand out in the crowd to get attention. You know, when you go back and look at statistics, I mean, I've heard like 16% of Americans are on Twitter. And of that, 60% of those people aren't on it daily. No, signed so, up once and right. forgot that they... So you're, you're, you're preaching to... It, that's why it's an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. It's because it's a very small group of people, and most of them are in the media. And so people are doing it to, to respond to one another, and then all of a sudden it's on the news, and, well, this person said this on Twitter, and that person said... And most people go, I wouldn't have known that if you hadn't told me they said that on Twitter, nor do I care. Right, yeah, and I think that goes uh, even d- double for a lot of NFL fans. Yeah. You know? Uh, but real quick, I want to talk to you about the book, obviously, but you said that you were a shy kid, didn't even talk. How how do you make the transition from that to being somebody who talks for a living? <laughs> um, time. You know, I, it, I was very quiet. And like I said, you know, I, sports were always my release. Maybe that was it. You know, I was the, I was a pretty good athlete growing up. I grew up in Atlanta. Um, and, yeah, I was part of the time where you just got sent out after school to go play. Mm-hmm. So half the year you play basketball and then you play football and then you play baseball. And so it was all different sports, different times of year. But I was always a pretty good athlete in the neighborhood, at least, uh, at uh, all those sports. So I was always one of the first guys picked or the team captain or whatever. And so you wind up interacting with other kids your age. But outside of sports, I still was really like in school. I didn't talk much, a student, all that stuff. But I didn't talk a whole lot. Uh, And I just think over time, being part of of teams and being around other people kind of helped break that shyness, if you will. And then it got to the point where I had never even thought about being on television until I was a sophomore in college and volunteered at a local station in Cedar Rapids. And the guy said, hey, you ever think about being on TV? I thought I wanted to be a producer or something behind the scenes. I had interned at CNN uh, the summer before. Um, and he said, put your voice down on tape. And then I did that, and there was a, a, a joy. I was 19 years old that I hadn't found in anything else. And, it, it's, you know, people go, that was my calling. There was something that hit me that I loved it. I loved it. And so then... It became about the craft and about working at it and about getting better at it. And so in order to get better at it, you've got to do it. It's like anything else. More reps, more reps, more reps. And everywhere I was along the way, you know, when I was 19 and starting out in Cedar Rapids and a sophomore in college and on the air, and um, then I got to anchor some, and then I worked in Des Moines, Iowa, and Madison, Wisconsin, wherever I was, Dallas, Texas, New York. My goal was always to be the best guy in that market, um, and I took it as a, a challenge. So... In order to get better, I've just got to work more, and I've got to work smarter. At some point, you kind of figure that out. Yeah, that's not a very humble goal, because a lot of people would say, oh, as soon as I got there, I just wanted to hang. I just didn't want to lose my job. Yeah, but but my job was never, though. I mean, my, my goal was never that I'm going to use this job to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I never thought about being on network television. I honestly didn't. I didn't work in Jacksonville, Florida, thinking I've got to get to a top 10 market. Once I was in the top 10 market in Dallas, Monday through Friday, I didn't think, I've got to get to New York. It's the number one market. These transitions just happened, and I believe it was because I focused on just being the best I could and being the best in that market. And as long as you're you're good, you get opportunities. But you've got to be ready when you get opportunities because if you don't, if you spent your time you know, enjoying the quote-unquote good life and being the main guy in Dallas at 26 years old and going out and partying and not doing your work, well, then you don't get the opportunity to go to New York later on. Destiny, Those things just happen. Yeah, right. Destiny you know? favors the well-prepared. Exactly. And, and so that's how I always looked at it. You don't seem like... I've been surprised when I listen to some of my favorite like play-by-play or studio anchor kind of guys that... A lot of them are a lot more like egotistical than I would guess <laughs> they are, which I, I, I do understand that they are 
at the top of their chosen field in the same way that Tom Brady is the top of his field. But I'll hear these guys talking about, well, I'll never forget the first time I used my little catchphrase. <laughs> it actually just came yeah. out spontaneously. Right. And then I realized, mm, that's a good one. And I'm like, really? That yeah. thing that yeah. you say? And I don't want to say any guys, you know, but all the guys who have a book, full of, a book full of ad libs, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I ad libbed that. Well, it's on page 37, and I used it on this date back in this year. Right. So, you know, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, I, again, I, I've been fortunate um, as someone who didn't grow up. Again, I, I, it was weird. As a kid, I didn't talk a lot, but I watched the news and I watched sports. So I guess, you know, somehow it, it kind of slid into my brain. Um, and so uh, I didn't grow up with this being my goal. So maybe that's different because so many broadcasters did. From you know, I don't have the story of when I was eight years old. I used to turn the sound down on TV and I do the play. But I didn't do that. Right. I watched the games. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I loved it, and I played sports. Mm-hmm. But I never had that as someday I'm going to grow up and do that. Maybe it's because you know where I grew up in, in you know, Atlanta and, and a poor neighborhood. Those kinds of dreams didn't seem realistic. Didn't seem like it, it's hard to explain to people about being in a situation where you don't even have dreams because it just does not even seem like a plausible thing on anybody's radar. Right, yeah. Bob Costas was definitely talking to his team. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> There's no doubt about exactly. that. You know, and, and no knock against him. He, no, he's, he's great. He's, I love him. Yeah. He's the best at what he does, for yeah. sure. So let's. I have many questions about the book. Losing isn't everything. The untold stories and hidden lessons behind the toughest losses in sports history. The obvious question, everybody loves a winner. To the victor goes the spoils. The guy who wins the Super Bowl goes to Disneyland. Mm-hmm. Why why the losers? The, the exact reason right there, because I, you know, especially being in this business, we see the winners, and they do go to Disneyland, and they go into the halls of fame, and they get the TV jobs. And outside of right after a team loses, and I'm talking monumental losses, not you know one of 62 losses during a baseball season. Um, but when you lose a Super Bowl, you hear from the head coach or the quarterback ten minutes after the game. It's awful. And then that's it, though. But that's it. it it's mm-hmm. done. It's like, oh wow, that's really depressing. Okay, now let's move on and never talk about them again. Back to the champagne. So, right. So I got to wondering, and I've always wondered, okay, what happens to these people, especially ones that don't get a second chance at it? You know, that that was their one shot at winning a championship or, or, or winning a series or, or a game, uh, and they were that close. You know, not somebody who got blown out. You were that close to having your life be totally different. And most of these guys, with the exception of managers and coaches, are in their 20s, men and women, you know, because they're young athletes. So now you've got the next 40, 50 years of your life to live, knowing that you were that close to, quote-unquote, greatness, but also, in the case of all the people in this book, being known for the person who was on the other side, who didn't win, who had the failure on the big stage. How do you live with everywhere you go, people bringing up one of the worst moments of your life? Yeah, or thinking about it. Yeah. As, as a fan, do you have, was there a loss that just destroyed you as a fan yeah um you know probably i I grew up again i keep saying atlanta you know there are a lot of bad sports teams in atlanta when i grew up uh some of those celtic series with the hawks broke my heart but you know those were series just in general but yeah you got used to it you know the braves won one championship in that great run where they won 13 14 straight division titles unbelievable they had four aces right exactly (laughs) you know and Two of them are in the Hall of Fame already. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. it's one of those things you look at, you just kind of got used to it. I don't know, my wife's a Cubs fan, grew up in Chicago, so she had that joy last year. Um, but maybe in a way, the entire city's like Cubs fans. You just get used to losing when you grow up in Atlanta. So I, 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 as a sports fan, there were probably moments where I saw 
and you go, wow, I can't believe that team lost or that guy lost. And and again, maybe it's you know, not talking to a whole lot of people. Um, I, I, f- I always felt for people. Always felt for people who were on the on, on that side. Yeah, I agree. I've often thought, obviously, you need a lot of hard work to make it to, to be a pro athlete. But in a sense, you're like this lottery winner. Mm-hmm. Everybody, everybody played baseball as a kid, and you were the one who made it all the way. But then there's this cruel reverse lottery where you had to win the lottery to be the guy or girl who mm-hmm. who lost the reverse right. lottery. We had to all know who you were in the first place for this awful thing right. to happen yeah. to you. The average player or athlete doesn't get to the stage to blow the World Series. Yeah, because you got to be really good or to, to be have Bill, Michael to, Jordan to, hit to a be shot Bill, over. Muck, Bill Buckner. Exactly, right. yeah. exactly. So you know, but it, it came from the the standpoint of wondering how these people dealt with this for the rest of their lives, uh, especially when it's brought up time and time and time again. Um, but also, we all have this moment. It's just not done on national television. And replayed on YouTube over and over again. We all have bad moments. We all yeah. have situations where, you know, you get fired, you uh, get divorced, your kids don't grow up to be what you thought they were. You know, disappointing moments in life. How do we bounce back? What can we learn maybe from people who have blown big moments, historical moments, that we can use to improve ourselves and, and to get over those moments or move forward, if not get over them, a, a lot sooner? And so for me, it was as much a psychological study as it was about anything having to do with sports. What separated the people that you talked to for cuz you interviewed a bunch of, you know, mm-hmm. athletes who've had these titanic losses um on the largest possible stage. I'm sure some of them have made their peace with it better than others. What do you think separates? You know, it, it seems as though because most of the stories in the book I went back to you know a couple decades. You've got the '86 Red Sox. You've got uh, Craig Elo, who Michael Jordan hit the shot over in in '89. Mary Decker, who fell at the Olympics. Uh, Dan Jansen, um, but also some that are a little bit more recent. You know, the, the Patriots' perfect season mm-hmm. um, falling apart. The Seattle Seahawks throwing the interception against the Patriots a couple years ago. But also, I, I went farther back because I wanted perspective. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard, like the Atlanta Falcons right now. They can't tell you how their life's going to turn out because they just lost the Super Bowl in January. And yes, it's disappointing, but what happens if they go on and win five? It absolutely changes right. it, everything. It, it means that game means nothing. I if, never thought about it's part actually part of the great story. Then yeah. I never thought about the Colts. Who yeah. you think about Joe Namath guaranteeing the victory? I right. never thought about yeah. the Colts. So you look at it from the other side. It, it, that I, was I, like the Washington Generals beating the Globetrotters. Right. It, it was unbelievable, and, and, and that's the earliest story we have in the book. Mm-hmm. And um, and Bill Curry, who was a center on that team, and Lou Michaels, two guys. Bill talked about how he will never get over that. Never. He's learned to live with it, but he will. Ne- he goes, we could play them 100 times, and we would beat them 99. He goes, that was just, it was impossible for us to lose that game. And Lou Michaels, who actually died during the writing of the book, and, and he was very kind, and, and his wife as well, to give us some time towards the end of his life, uh, and left us some, some items that were really good, some pictures and stuff that, that made it into the book. But you talk about a loss following you forever. He missed a couple kicks in that game, and they lost 16-9, and he says, you know, hey, if I'd made one early, maybe we got some momentum, those kind of things. And it literally followed him to his grave because the headline in the New York Times obit when he died was Lou Michaels, who missed kicks in Super Bowl three, dies at the age of 80. So, you know, for some people, they never move on. They never get over it. The people that did, though, it seemed as though they were the ones that addressed 
and were honest with themselves early. And that's what Pete Carroll talks a lot about, is that he feels that his team was able to move forward. You can debate whether or not that's true, but in his mind they have, because immediately he addressed it. And not only with the team in the locker room and all that, people forget as soon as the Super Bowl's over, season's over. Everybody goes all over the country, wherever they live. So he said he made a concerted effort to go on the Today Show, to go on national TV all that week when most coaches would bury their head and say, hey, I don't want to do interviews, because he wanted to get the message out to his players. That, Look, we did what we thought was right. It didn't work out. Sometimes it works like that in life. Yeah. As long as you do what, what, what you believe is the right thing, you should be able to live with it. And you can only control the process. Exactly. And John Van Devel, the same thing, the golfer who blew the British Open in 1999, only needed a double bogey on the final hole Shoots a seven, loses in the playoff. He said the same thing. He's like, look, part of his explanation was he's French. He went and had some wine. And six months later, he was doing commercials making fun of himself because he knew, he said, if I had listened to my caddy and taken the shots and blown up and shot a seven, he had a bunch of mishits. And it's almost like a verb to, to Vandeveld on, on a, a golf tournament, blow a lead. But he said, if I had listened to my caddy and done that, I'd never be able to live with myself. But I thought through every shot. And I did what I wanted to do. It didn't work out, Mm -hmm. but I was true to myself. And I can live with it because I was true to myself. And I was able to move on forward. So I think those people that addressed it immediately, at least in an honest way, because there are people who say they dealt with and they never really did it. You know, Calvin Chiraldi, the pitcher on the Red Sox team in 86, and everybody blames Bill Buckner because they've seen that ball go through his legs eight million times. I cried. I cried cried when that ball went through his legs. Are you a Red Sox guy? No, I I was so insane. Feeling for him? No, um, you know what? I was a very uh, I'd become a baseball fan very recently, and I had the zeal of the recent convert. Mm-hmm. And um, I was such a big Yankees fan that I so desperately needed the Mets to lose. I had no sense of the history whatsoever. I was going to say that's a little tougher. If you're, who do you root for? The Mets or the Red Sox? See, if I didn't you're a Yankees know. fan. I had right. no, I, you're all still I knew. Was, all yeah. I knew was every kid in my class was liked Strawberry fan. and right. Gooden, and, right. and you go on down Dykstra, gotcha. Nails, and and you know, and, okay. and and I and I was over my aunt and uncle's house, and I'm not proud to say that I, I wept into their couch. <laughs> well, it, but that's the place that Dave everybody Stapleton remembers. Should have been out there. Even I knew that. But but the thing is, that was the tenth inning of Game Six. Mm-hmm. There was still a Game Seven. Nobody ever talks about that fact. Yeah. But Chiraldi was the pitcher who lost both games six and seven. He was a reliever, came out of the bullpen, blew two leads in game six that got the game to extra innings, um, and the Buckner play happened. Then in game seven, came in in a tie game in the seventh inning, gave up a home run in the first battery face, lost game seven. So he only lasted in the majors three more years, bounced around the Cubs, San Diego, really never did anything after that. Disappeared. Went down to Texas, became a baseball coach at this really tiny parochial high school. I mean, they only had 19 baseball players on the team. It, it's it's that small. Um, but this was in 86, obviously, when the Red Sox lost the World Series. I, he interviewed him first in 2015, and he had just started going to therapy because he said his wife told him, you've never been the same since that moment. And he said she was 100% right. And she stuck with him. Yes. Oh, oh my goodness. He, the, he, but they met when he was a double-A player. She said, I fell in love with you. You've, you've not been the guy. And he goes, he wasn't involved in mentally, emotionally, in raising his children. Uh, he said that he can't communicate with strangers. He's at baseball, he's fine, with his players and, and that, but talk to their parents, someone in a store. He goes, I just went into such a shell because that next year, Wherever he went on the road, people remembered he lost six and seven then. Over time, because they've seen the Buckner play, they've forgotten about it. But in his mind, he, he just got beat up so much that next year uh, that it, it, it forced him to really go into a shell. His, when you go into a room, you go to a restaurant, you never know who's the one guy that's like, ah, oh, that's that guy. Exactly. Well, and his father committed suicide along the way, not because of that, 
But his father had cancer. And he said he saw the way his father had dealt with everything in his life, wound up leading him to commit suicide when he was faced with cancer. And he goes, I was on the same path. He goes, I, I, I was dealing with it the same. So finally, in 2013, nearly 30 years later, he started going to therapy, and he's still dealing with it. And he, he, you know, he was open and honest, and that's one of the great things about this book. So many people took us to dark places like that, or um, um, you know, drug issues, or, or marital issues, or things that they, and in some cases therapists, directly say is because they never came to terms with that moment or that loss. Yeah. And the people that dealt with it, they're not happy they lost, but they've had been able to have lives that are normal or, or put in perspective. And Dan Jansen talked about it. He goes, you know, I do public speaking for a living, and whenever anybody hires me, particularly a team, I tell them right away, I'm probably not going to give you the message you want to hear. I'm going to tell, as long as you go out and you do your best, you know, and you go out and bust your tail and you don't look back and say, I wish I'd done this or practice more or whatever, then, then you're a winner. And he said he didn't learn that at the beginning. You know, he fell three consecutive Olympics and finally won in his final race. Um, but he, uh, he says that that message is something that he wished he had learned because he kept beating himself up and beating himself up, and it continued to lead to failure. It was finally when he accepted, you know what, this is my last race. I'm going out and just doing the best I can and relaxed that he was able to, quote-unquote, succeed and win a medal. Is it hard to be at, you know, hit send on the phone call or hit send on the email or the text to these people, if you say, hey, it's Kurt Menefee, I'm, I'm writing this book, mm-hmm. they know damn well yeah. what you don't want to yeah. talk to Calvin Chiraldi about his curveball. Yeah, you know, but but what I found interesting was the acceptance rate. I would say, because you drop the list of, of monumental moments, monumental losses in sports, and then you go through that list and say, okay, you know, who would be interesting? What story would be interesting? What story hasn't been told? And that was part of the, the Chiraldi thing. The Buckner story's been told you know, did a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode. Yeah, sleep that you know, guy He alone. and Mookie are buddies now. So, yeah, right. so, But there had to be more. So that went back and looked at that game, and that's when it clicked about Chiraldi. But when you reach out to people, you, you right, you have no idea what the response is going to be. And 75% of the people wound up agreeing to it. Uh, the 25% that didn't, some right away said, nope, not going to do it. No. Others said, let me think about it. And then there were some, just, yeah, I just kind of passed that point in my life. I don't want to talk about it anymore. And my thing was, nobody got paid to be in the book. So it had to be, obviously, all volunteer, but you had to be willing to do it because it was going to be multiple interviews um, and you're going to have to open up some scars that probably you had hoped healed. But my approach to everybody was, as I, I told you, for me, it was as much a psychological study as anything else. I didn't want to rehash your loss. I don't want to just go, obviously, the story has to be told. Right. What was happening in that moment? What were you thinking? How did you feel? But I want it to be about your life and how it's affected your life, how it's affected your family, how it's affected you You know, when you go out in public. Um, how have you learned to overcome that? How did you bounce back? And what lessons would you give other people? What would you tell somebody who's going through what they consider the worst moment of their life, yeah. yet they've still got another 50 years to live. And, and what, once what I did think? that approach, yeah. I think that's why 75% of the people did it, um, because they understood that this wasn't just going to be the same thing that they've done interview after interview, or a lot of them, some of them hadn't. You know, Chiraldi hadn't done an interview since he retired. Wow. Um, and, you know, so that it wasn't just going to be rehashing your loss and your worst moment. I wanted to, to, to people to learn something out of it. And uh-huh. some of them were okay, let's do one interview and we'll see where it goes. And at that point, 
then it's on me to make sure that they understand to not go in and beat them up about whatever they lost, uh, that whatever their loss was, to make sure that they got the big picture about what I was trying to do. And, you know, everyone obviously who's in the book, once you did that, then they saw, okay, that first of all, he's honest. He wasn't BSing me. But secondly, that I, I see now the bigger picture. And there were people we interviewed that wound up not making the book just because I, I thought the story just didn't flush out or, or didn't fit well. If you had to boil down the wisdom that you got from all the people that you talked to, how how do you deal with uh, you know a titanic failure? Yeah, immediately. And I, I think I go back to what I was saying earlier. I think is you have to be honest with yourself. You can't say, okay, well, I'll just put that on the back burner uh, and never deal with it. You know, because that's a moment I'm just going to move forward because yeah. that's those are the people that are that had the drug problems or that uh, wound up in, in, in you know, rehab, uh, mental and, and therapy um, were the ones who really did not address it in an honest fashion. And sometimes it's not pretty, you know, because sometimes it's your fault. Sometimes it's someone else's. But you've got to get to that honest point. And, and it's interesting. I, I think I found out the people also who were in individual sports, golf, tennis, they had an easier time dealing with this than people who were in team sports because they look around. There's nobody to blame but themselves. I'm the one that screwed up. I'm the one that made the mistake. Whereas in a team sport, even though you may feel you're the one that made the mistake, then you go, but I let everybody else down. See, that's what I would think. It's actually harder to let other people down. We yeah. care more about what other people think yep. about us than what we think about ourselves. Yeah, and that's that's the theme that happens with team sport. It's not necessarily, well, that outfielder blew it and I didn't win a ring. It was that I blew it, and that outfielder didn't win a ring. You know, one of the, the bigger stories was Rodney Harrison on that Patriots team yeah. that lost the Super Bowl to the Giants, perfect season. Um, and <clears throat> the details are in the book about he was the defender on the David Tyree catch against his helmet, yeah. which is every photo you ever see from that that game. Iconic. He, yeah. yeah, and Harrison's the defender. They, they don't show the photos of all the holding <laughs> the, off, the offensive line was doing. <laughs> they got away with it. So, But he was the defender on that. And But, you know, he says at that point he's the you know, captain of the defense, and he's telling everybody, look, there's still a minute and a half left just under, you know, and they still got 25 yards to go. The game's not over. But a couple plays later – the defensive coordinator, Dean Pease, calls a blitz on the, on the sideline. Calls it in, relays it to Rodney. Rodney calls it in the huddle. Also on that team was Junior Seau, who was 19-year veteran at the end of his career. But Junior and Rodney had gone back to when Rodney was drafted in the fifth round out of Western Illinois by the San Diego Chargers. Barely played his rookie year. Didn't play at all the Super Bowl they got to that year. But he said Junior took him under his wing because he saw how hard he worked and, and he said he called him Hot Rod, and um, they became close. So when Junior came to the Patriots at the end, Rodney had already won two Super Bowl rings. Junior had never won one. So they get out there, and it's the play that winds up being the touchdown pass to Plexico Burris. He calls the blitz. They get out. Everybody lines up. And so that means one-on-one coverage by the outside guys. He says, I see five foot eight Ellis Hobbs as a defender against six foot five Plexico Burris. I know immediately we got no chance to stop that. So I go, let's call off the blitz. Um, Junior, who's the linebacker in front of him, goes, no, let's run it. He goes, no, let's call it off. Junior goes, no, let's run it. And he emphasizes, he's not blaming Junior on this at all, that he's the captain, he's supposed to make the, the call. But he went back to his relationship with Junior and how much he cared about Junior. He used the word love and about how important it was for him to quit, let Junior win a ring helped Junior win a ring, yeah. that he went against his own nature and knew that he should have called it off and didn't, 
snap happens, he says as soon as he sees Eli throw the ball, he didn't even have to turn around because he knew it was over. And he felt bad because Junior wound up committing suicide later on. And I think that obviously made it probably even harder for him to deal with. Of course. That he never won a ring and is not around anymore, his good friend. Um, but his his depression that he went into, um, Rodney Harrison, was because he felt that here's the guy that, that taught me everything I know, and I let him down. And that's what he said. He said to Junior in the locker room, and Junior was a great guy, anybody can tell you. You know, He said, hey, dude, we were all out there. Don't worry about it. He says, but he always felt a responsibility that Junior died without a ring because he knew better, and had he done what he was supposed to do, right. call the blitz off, right. they win the game, and Junior gets his ring. But that's always the thing is we do this not just in sports but in our lives. We reduce whole episodes and years and whatever to a handful of memories. I think it's the way our brain yeah. works. You look at a, a classic you know, choke or whatever. I'll, I'll show you another point in the same game or the same series, whatever, where that guy got a big hit or another teammate did something even stupider three minutes earlier, but it wasn't the straw that broke the camel's back. And, and it's, again, like I say, it's like the loser's lottery of the winner's lottery that unfortunately, by making it to the biggest stage, you risk yeah. being known as the biggest the biggest loser. The Rodney Harrison thing, I mean, that helmet catch is nobody's fault. Right. It's, it's ludicrous. It's a miracle. Well, yeah. he even talks about in the book, he goes, I physically thought I knocked the ball away. Yeah, I, I thought him. I swatted it away, and I'm down on the ground, and Steve Smith, who's a wide receiver for the Giants, is like, good catch, good catch, get up off. He goes, good catch? I'm like, What's he talking about? He goes, he stands up and he looks at the Jumbotron, and he sees the catch against his helmet. And he goes, look, the miracle catch, those things happen. And he goes, he doesn't beat himself up about that at all. Because that was a one in a billion chance that that happened. Yep. He beats himself up because he had control over the other situation yeah, yeah. And, and didn't do it. You talked about the, the Lindsey Jacob Ellis thing, and that mm-hmm. strikes me as a unique situation in the regard that nobody did that to her. No, right. no competitor pushed her to that mm-hmm. point. Nobody tackled her. Nobody knocked the ball mm-hmm. away. She had the gold medal sewn up, and she decided to represent the spirit of her sport and throw a little flair S- snowboarding, in. Snowboarding, yeah. At the, at the end, mm-hmm. and... Boy, I don't know what my it, question is. Boy, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> it, it threw her off track, and she she wound up, you know, sliding on the side, and you know that was it. Yeah. Gold medal gone. Um, but the thing is, is that she, you know she talks about it, the same thing that she had gotten so wrapped up in, and that's another thing that you find, especially with Olympic athletes, they get wrapped up in winning the gold medal, and it becomes about that instead of the process. And she at that point wanted to represent the sport, have some fun, have a good time. She goes, that's that's. That's why we're all here. This is what we do. But then the burden became that that's all people brought up to her. Every time the Olympics came around, she's won 11 world championships, including winning one last year. Yeah. Uh, and that's still what people remember her for and still talk about. And um, I mean, she lost a sponsor over it. I mean, just crazy stuff. That was a crazy anecdote. If we can talk about it here. That yeah. She found out in an email that she'd lost a, an Olympic bonus. Yeah. Because how, why, how, why did you do something so stupid? Well, exactly. <laughs> she was supposed to, if she medaled, she was supposed to get a bonus. Mm-hmm. And she wound up getting a silver, silver, silver medal, excuse me. Um, but they decided not to pay her the bonus because she, she was like, I could have sued and all, but they were. Uh, Foreign company, yeah. it would have not have been worth it. Would have been it's, negative publicity. All sounds like Red stuff. Bull. We don't need to. Yeah, get it. <laughs> but it, it all happened via email, and they just sent her an email. Sorry, we're not paying you your yeah. bonus. Basically, screw so, you and sue yeah. you, sue us if you if you think you can. Swiss people are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a couple more questions in the yeah. couple minutes that I have uh, left with you. How did the UFC happen? Is that something you're interested in, or mm-hmm. did they just you um, were the guy it, for the it, chair? It, no, it, it was. Yeah, I had 
and throughout my career, I you know done boxing, but I, I not That's done right, yeah. MMA. So I, I did some boxing, and so when Fox in 2011 signed the contract with the UFC, they knew I had done some combat sports, uh, and you know I think obviously it was it was November 2011. Um, the Cain Velasquez Junior DeSantos fight. Oh, they blew it so bad. Even I remember that. Yeah. Oh, they blew it so. Why was yeah. there only one fight on the card? Yeah, well, because so it was. Well, it's a big heavyweight fight, and you yeah. Know, but that's what happens. You get big guys go, and it could last less than a minute. And you, it had did. To, you had to stack did, that card. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> lesson was learned. Trust me. Um, but you know, so they knew I had been involved in combat sports, and um, you know, they wanted to make a big splash on on Fox the first fight and pump it, pump it up and all that. I'm on the NFL show and that kind of thing. So they approached me and asked me. And I I was fortunate enough because of Jay Glazer, who's on our show, our NFL insider, but he's a big MMA guy. And he knows a lot of fighters, a lot, like, trains with a lot of them, trains a lot of them as well. Um, but I got to know a, a couple of fighters and even had you know, been to Hawaii or out drinking or whatever, being stupid with, with a couple of guys. So you watch them whenever they had big fights. So I'd seen them, but I, it's certainly different than being a commentator. Um, so when they asked me if I would do it, I said, yeah, okay, you know, no problem. And it's, you know, evolved from there. And obviously the more you're around it, the more fighters, you know, the more, you know, the sport, all those kind of things. And I do the, the four fights that are on the Fox network, uh, unless there's one in December and there's too difficult to do for football, you know, like this December, it's in Winnipeg. There's no way in December you're getting on a Saturday night from Winnipeg back to Los Angeles to do an mm-hmm. NFL show. Right. So I'm not doing that one, but otherwise I'll do the four that are on the Big Fox Network. Uh, and it's been fun. It's been I, I've enjoyed it. You know, because one of the great things for me is that I, I always go back to that test, and it's it's a different muscle. You know, it's not the NFL, something you know, so your homework becomes different. You're getting to know people within the sport, not just the fighters, you know, trainers and managers and those kind of things. It, it, it's a different skill. Um but it's been enjoyable uh, from this very start, and I love doing it. What do you think is the ceiling on mixed martial arts? Like, is there ever going to come a time where, like, will it, is it too brutal to ever be the thing that the family gathers around the TV for on on Sunday morning, or are we just going to become more and more desensitized yeah, as a culture I, I, to where I, that's I no big deal? I think it's the latter. <laughs> I honestly do. I, I think that the two things. One, one of the great things about the UFC, particularly when they first started at Fox and before the sale happened. I'm not saying it's changed, but you know, at the beginning, they really wanted to become mainstream. Yes. So they were open to anything that you wanted. Anybody you need to meet, any yeah. things you need to do, how can we help you, how can we help you, how can we help you? Can we bring Cletus back? Exactly. So <laughs> so those kinds of things helped their curve, yeah. uh, but also helped me get up to speed a lot faster, and I'm always appreciative of that. Uh, and I think that by being on the Fox Network, I use he's probably not the demographic they want, but my father-in-law is 75 years old, had never seen an MMA fight because I was doing it, and it was on Fox and on free television and all that. And he was a big boxing fan, watched it, wound up watching another fight and then another fight. Then he gets to the point now he orders you know the big pay-per-views, not all the time, right. but he's been to fights in Vegas, and so he's become a convert. Um, and I think that that has happened more and more, and as, as you said, with the young people, I think it's they're so desensitized, I don't think it, it matters a whole lot. The concern about, oh, there's too much blood and all that kind of stuff, I really don't, I don't think it's going to be a big issue. Uh, we have to go. Thank you very, very much. We're done already? Yeah, it's already been an hour. Oh, my gosh. It's very kind of you to pretend that it hasn't felt like an hour. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I probably talk too much. I should have let you ask more questions. Kurt Menefee is the host of the Fox NFL Sunday and the paperback of the book, Liz- Losing Isn't Everything, The Untold Stories and Hidden Lessons Behind the Toughest Losses in Sports History is available now. Thanks again.